the zone. The Prophecy Zone, your end-time watchman, bringing you light in a dark world where truth is rivaled with a lie and the matrix is normal life. Luke 21. And there shall be signs in the sun and in the moon and in the stars and upon the earth distress of nations with perplexity, the sea and the waves roaring, men's hearts failing them for fear, and for looking after those things which are coming on the earth, for the powers of heaven shall be shaken, and then shall they see the Son of Man coming in a cloud, with power and great glory. And when these things begin to come to pass, then look up and lift up your heads, for your redemption draweth nigh. You are now in the zone. So be ready to enter the light or truth about the end of days, so you will be ready for the coming of the Lord. You are in the zone, the prophecy zone. So join us for the next hour as we look at world events in line with Bible prophecy, so you'll be informed and be ready for the coming of Jesus Christ. Good evening, or good Good morning, everybody. This is Brenda Johnson. It is so good to be back with you today. Uh, it has been a long three weeks for me as I have been ill for three weeks. And so now I am back and I am ready to hit the books, hit the information, and to to really give you some um, good teaching this week, uh, good stuff to talk about. Uh, we have a lot to cover, and um, I'm just going to go ahead and, and start. You know, I am the host of uh, As the Day Approaches, and I want to welcome you today. Uh, we're going to focus on uh, Iran, the Islamic Revolution, and this is part two of what I thought was going to be a two-part series, but I may have to make it a third part as well after uh, doing the study and putting together the information and the work that I have in front of me, I realize that uh, I may have to do another show So on the same subject. There is so much to talk about. I am uh, extremely excited to bring this information to you. So what is happening? We've got to ask some questions. We've got to ask what is happening in the world and, and do the events in the Middle East, you know, do they have anything to do with uh, a one world religion, a one world government, a one world social order, a one world economy? What about the Iranian Revolution? Does Iran have a predominant role in the coming world order? Will Islam rule the world? Or will they subject themselves to the coming ruler? On this episode, we will take a detailed look at Iran. And we have been doing that last week. We, we uh, were looking at Persia. Persia is actually uh, uh, the real Iran. Iran only became Iran in 1935 when they were in alliance with Russia and wanted to, um, the Shah of Iran wanted to uh, become friendly with Russia. And so they named themselves Iran after Iranians or the Aryans. They are the Aryans, just like uh, Hitler was developing the Iranian um, breed. They were trying to unite in the same um 
aspect of Iran. That's what where the name came from. It used to be Persia up until that time. And so per, when you hear Persia, you can automatically hear Iran. Uh, <clears throat> so we want to we want to focus this week on the Muslim uprising in e- Egypt, the Middle East, North Africa, and Europe. You know, we're not going to really actually go into de- detail on them, but we are going to focus our, uh, our um, time in Iran. In part one, I took you back in history. We talked about the history of Persia, which is modern Iran, and now it is be- uh, has been an ongoing player in the world stage. Today, I will take you back in a review and add Bible prophecy to this historical events. Now, if you were in front of me, if I were in front of you and I uh, had a screen in front of me, I would actually be taking the history, and now I would be putting over that history another layer on top of that, showing you within that history how Bible uh, the his, history of the Bible, uh, Bible prophecy, uh, 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 Bible that ha- you know history that has passed, actually coincides with the events in Persia. It makes you uh, aware of how involved Persia was in the in relation to Israel, in relation to the history of the world, and so th- today it is no surprise that Iran or Persia is uh, coming to life or raising up. Understanding Persia of the past helps to understand the Persia of the present. Uh, Now, after we do that, I'll also review the history of Islam in order to bring it to its current resurgence. So when I go back into this history, like I did last time on this show, I went back and I just gave you an overview of the history. I'm going to kind of go back a little bit and give you a more detailed focus on not only uh, biblical prophecy with Persia, but also uh, Islam and how it developed. We are going. We only got to the 12th century at the 11th century last week, and we are going to go into the 1979 revolution, and we are going to focus on a few characters. Uh, <clears throat> does Iran and Persia play a significant role in the end times and Bible prophecy today? What does the Iranian Islamic Revolution have to do with uh Bible prophecy. Is there anything that that we can draw from uh, what is happening now in our, our time? We live in amazing times. I would never have focused so much on Iran as I, you know, you know, when I was younger than I am today. Um, and we are. I'm going to show you some reasons and why we need to watch Iran. Uh, Today, Bible history will meet Bible prophecy. Are we seeing the stage being set for the final showdown between the saints of God and the Antichrist? We will be looking at this and more on today's program. Uh, It's entitled Islamic Revolution Iran Part 2. On September 17, 2005, President of Iran, Mahmoud Ahmadinejad, said this before the United Nations. He calls it the Islamic invocation. Now, if this sounds familiar, those of you who are astute 
with uh, the New Age movement, they also have a worldwide invocation. And if you put these side by side, they sound very similar. So this is what he said. From the beginning of time, humanity has longed for the day when justice, peace, equality, and compassion envelope the world. All of us can contribute to the establishment of such a world. When the day comes, the ultimate promise of divine religions will be fulfilled with the emergence of a perfect human being who is heir to all prophets and pious men. He will lead the world to justice and absolute peace. And we know that Jesus is going to come back again. We know that he is going to establish peace and justice on the earth. But Mahmoud Ahmadinejad is not talking about Jesus as the one who is going to come and establish peace on the earth. He is talking about the al-Mahdi or the 12th Imam who will come and establish peace. He is not Jesus. Jesus actually will be with the uh, Mahdi, the 12th Imam, and will be his kind of like his sidekick. Um, Yes, I did mean what I said. Jesus will have a secondary position and will submit himself to the Almighty. Now, on today's show, uh, last week we studied the history of Persia. Currently, Iran, we will review significant historical events in Persia and line it up to to corresponding biblical events that include Persia. Special attention will be given to the earliest history with in regards to Islam and its influence on Persia as well as the 18th and 21st through to the 21st century. We will be talking about the 1979 revolution in Iran. Leader, we will also focus our attention on the leaders influencing Iran today. I have four leaders highlighted, and I will be talking about their belief in the 12th Imam al-Mahdi and how it influences Islamic ideology and their quest for world domination. Now, these leaders include Ayatollah Rohola Mosavi Khomeini, the head of state and the spiritual leader of the 1979 revolution. Uh, Rola Khomeini is no longer alive. He died in 1981, I believe. Uh, I, uh, the other one I'm going to uh, draw attention to is Ayatollah Sayyid Ali Hosseini Khomeini. Now, there's a difference. They sound a lot alike. Khomeini is K-H-O-M-E-I-N-I. He is the spiritual leader of the 1979 revolution. Now, Khomeini, he is still alive, and he is actually the one who took the place of Ayatollah Khomeini. And his name is spelled K-H-A-M-E-N-E-I. So there's a there's a difference in the name of spelling, but it sounds very familiar. He is the current spiritual leader of Iran. Iran, Mahmoud Ahmadinejad. He is the current president of Iran, and Ayatollah Mohammed Taki Masbayazdi. Yeah, that's a mouthful. He is the chief spiritual advisor to Ahmadinejad. 
These four characters are extremely important in the scenario in which we're going to talk about in Bible prophecy, and their uh, particular roles are are quite telling. Um, I may not be able to introduce you to all of them today. That's why I'm probably going to do a third one. Um, now, we are also going to have how is Iran influencing current events and Islamic uprisings throughout the Middle East, Africa, Asia, and Europe, and their goal their goal to destroy the West, namely the United States and Israel. And these are this is their goal, their ultimate goal. Now Ezekiel thirty six through thirty eight, uh, we're gonna we're gonna touch on this. We're gonna go there, and uh, we'll be paying special attention to prophecy regarding future alliances in today's headlines. Now, are we seeing? The alliance is taking place today. Now, what countries mentioned in Ezekiel represent Rosh Gog and Magog, Persia, Ethiopia, Put, Gomer, Beth, Togomara, and then can we see these being fulfilled in our day? As you can see, there is a lot to cover today, so that's why I think that we're probably going to do a part three because of uh all of the information i don't want you to miss any of this i want you to hear it and i want you to see how this particular area in uh that part of the world has played a integral role in the formation of mankind as well as relation to israel as well as the final hour in which we will uh see maybe in our day now I want to before I get into our get into all of you know the information I have to share with you I want to suggest a couple books that have actually been a very a great influence uh great read actually um Showdown with Nuclear Iran Radical Islam's Messianic Mission to Destroy Israel and Cripple the United States by Michael D. Evans with Jerome R. Corsi. This is the, this is by Nelson Current and published in 2006. Inside the Revolution, How the Followers of Jihad, Jefferson, and Jesus are Battling to Dominate the Middle East and Transform the World by Joel C. Rosenberg, uh, published by Tyndale, 2009. The Rumbling Volcano, I mentioned this in one of my shows. I haven't, you know, I, this book has so given, has given me such insight into understanding these uprisings in the Middle East and where it started with the, the uh, Muslim Brotherhood and a lot of the terrorist organizations. Uh, it's called Rumbling Volcano, Islamic Fundamentalism in Egypt by Nabil Jabour, who is a Christian in, in uh, Egypt. Uh, this was published by Mandate Press in Pasadena, California in 1993. Interesting that he published this book in 1993 before all of the uprisings happened in Egypt. And you can understand what is currently going on or what currently has happened in this year regarding uh, the Middle East. If you remember... Um, the uprisings that are happening in 12 different uh, countries, which include uh, Egypt, Libya, Libya, Algeria, Morocco, Tanzania, Lebanon, Jordan, Syria, Iran, Kuwait, Qatar, the United Arab Emigrants, Oman, Bahrain, and Yemen. 
also in the African Ivory Coast. Those are um, some of what has been in the uprisings. People have been asking why are these countries, why is Islam uh, throwing out their leaders? Is this a democracy happening? And we have to say that actually this is not, if you understand Islam, they are throwing out the secular leaders that do not adhere to Islam, that do not follow the uh, the uh, desire of the establishment of the caliphate and the uh, radical jihadist ideology. Another thing, another uh, little brochure I want to suggest to you, called "From Ancient Persia to Contemporary Iran," uh, is by Reza. I don't know how to say his last name. Ladajavzar. L-A-D-J-E-V-A-R-D-I-A-N, and that was published in 2005. Well, let's go ahead and let's start with all this information as we have uh, so little time and so much to say. Now, uh, when we, we started to talk about the beginning of mankind, which some estimate the Earth being between 6,000 to 8,000 and some say 10,000 years old, but the oldest manuscript, the oldest um, historical documents or founding of mankind was actually an ag- agriculture revolution made possible permanent, uh, you know, there is permanent settlements. The first settlements that were found uh, were in the Iranian plateau, and it became the cradle of one of the oldest civilizations in history. We can see that from uh, Genesis 2, 10 through 14, it says a river watering the garden flowed from Eden. From there it was separated into four headwaters. The name of the first is Pushan. It winds through the entire land of Havilah where there is gold. The gold that is that land is good. Aramaic, resin, and onyx are also there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It winds through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris. It runs along the east side of Asher. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. Now, we see these rivers today in uh, Iraq. We see Baghdad is in Iraq. Babylon is in Iraq. But I want to let you know that when the Persian Empire was in full force, when it had conquered uh, great lands, Babylon and Baghdad were both part of the the uh, Persian Empire. So at one point, Babylon was in Persia or considered in Persia. Uh, 15 to 800 B.C., the Persians and the Medes, two groups of Aryan nomads, migrated to the Iranian plateau from Central Asia. Now, in Daniel chapter 5, verses 25 through 29, after conquering Babylon, the son of Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar, was confronted by God in the writing on the wall. We know the story of those of you who are Christians know the story well. This is the inscription that was written, Men, Men, Tickle, Tarsin. This is what these words mean. Men, many, uh, depending on how you want to pronounce it. God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. Tickle, you have been weighed on the scales and found wanting Purcell. Your kingdom is divided and given it to the Medes and the Persians. Then at Belshazzar's command, Daniel was clothed in purple. 
a gold chain was placed around his neck, and he was proclaimed the third highest ruler in the kingdom. And this is out of the Babylonian kingdom. Now, at that time, the Medes and the Persians invaded. Just as soon as that the, the writing of the wall, they went under the city and they conquered the city. So we see again the Medes and the Persians playing a, a, a integral role in conquering the land and being part of this history. 1000 BC, the prophet Zoroaster was one of the first prophets to introduce the concept of monotheism, duality of good and evil, mankind's free choice between the two alternatives, messianic redemption, resurrection, final judgment, heaven. The word paradise comes from the old Persian. Hell and the notion of an almighty, kind, loving, and forgiving God. He believed man's salvation in life and in the afterlife could only be ensured through good thoughts, good words, and good deeds. Now, this is not Christian, and this is not the God of Je the Jehovah God, but it had some of the first beginnings of, of there is just one God, and some of it is correct, some of it is not. Now, many of these concepts have a profound influence on, well, you know, they think that they say that it had a profound influence on Judaism and Christianity and Islam, but we know differently because God's uh, Bible, in the Bible, God reveals his truth to his people. And uh, the Persians adopted Zoroastrianism, and I'm not going to go into this, but the reason I am stating this and reviewing this again is because I want to, I want to show you where this plays a part also in Scripture. When in Matthew 2, 1 through 2, that the Magi came to Jerusalem to find the king of the Jews, he, this was the religion and this was the people in which uh, they came from. It was out of Persia, the kings of the, earth, the east, and they were astronomers. And they were also uh, understanding the concept of mon monotheism and the one God. And so so God was leading these magi, these wise men, to the truth of this one God through Jesus Christ. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born the king of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. So we see how Persia also plays a role in announcing or confirming that Jesus is is uh, some prophesied to come. Uh, it legitimizes, uh, well, not it doesn't legitimize because God Himself does and the angels do, but but it actually uh, brings uh, condemnation to King Herod, saying that you are not the king. And also, it also draws those from Persia to the truth of who that one God is. It is through Jesus Christ that salvation comes. Now, 559 um, to 530 B.C., Cyrus the Great established the Persian Empire in 550 B.C. in the First World Empire. Uh, this empire stretched all the way from um, uh, where, where it is close to India all the way through Turkey, Lydia, Thrace, the Byzantine Empire, down through Jerusalem to Libya, Memphis, and Egypt. 
all of that area, Iraq, this is the time when the empire was over the whole land of the East, media, media. Uh, the first world empire, his respect for local traditions, laws, languages, and religious set the foundation of a relatively benevolent empire. Now, 539 Babylonia surrendered peacefully to Cyrus the Grace, welcomed as a liberator because of his compassionate policies. Cyrus freed the Jews from captivity and assisted them to migrate to their homeland and to construct their temple in Jerusalem. In the Old Testament, in the book of Isaiah, Cyrus is hailed as the shepherd of the Lord. I am Cyrus, king of the world. When I entered Babylon, I did not allow anyone to terrorize the land. I kept in view the needs of, of its people and all of its sanctuaries to promote their well-being. I put an end to their misfortune the great God has delivered all lands into my hand and the lands that I have made to dwell in peaceful habitations. We see Second Chronicles 36, 21 through 23. The land enjoyed its Sabbath rest all the time of its desolation and it rested uh, until the 70 years were completed in fulfillment of the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah. So it's talking about the land of Israel. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and to put it in writing. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Any one of his people among you, may the Lord, his God, be with him and let him go up. And so he he allowed the people of Israel to leave Babylon and to go rebuild the temple. Uh, so we see the hand of another Persian king uh, involved in, in, in relationship with Israel. Now 522 B.C. to 480 B.C., the reign of Darius the Great marked the zenith of the Persian Empire, upholding the tradition established by Cyrus. Darius valued the rights of all people under his rule. The following inscription appears on his tomb. By the favor of the great God, I believe in justice and abhor iniquity. It is not my desire that the weak man should have wrong done to him by the mighty. Darius's goal was to be a great lawgiver and organizer. He structured the empire under this um, satrapy system, similar to the nation, national and local governments. He built many roads, ports, banking houses. The word check comes from old Persian. Elaborate underground irrigation systems and a canal to link the Nile to the Red Sea, an earlier precursor of the Swiss Canal. In the 19th century, archaeology is an Archaeologists in Egypt discovered an inscription by Darius commemorating the completion of the canal. I am a Persian. I commanded to dig this canal from the river by uh, river by name of by the name of the Nile, which flows in Egypt. After this canal was dug, ships went through Egypt through the canal to Persia. Thus, as my desire. Now, Darius revolutionized mankind's economic activities by introducing one of the earliest, certainly the first, on such a massive scale, 
forms of um, common coinage in history. The Derek, this initiative along with the standardization of weights and measures and the codification of commercial laws stimulated world trade and elevated the Persian Empire's economy to new levels of prosperity. Uh, reflecting the wealth and the multicultural dimension of the Persian em Empire, Darius initiated the building of the Persopolis Palace. For its construction, artisans and materials were gathered from different corners of the empire. Another project undertaken by Darius was the Royal Road of the world's longest extending 1,500 uh, uh, miles. Due to an extensive network of relays, the postmen could travel the road in six to nine days, whereas normal travel time was three months. The model of the Persian Postal Service became memorable, stopped by neither snow, rain, heat, or gloom of night. And we hear that today, actually, in our postal service. This is where it comes from. The U.S. Postal Service also adopted this motto, and the famous Pony Express mail delivery resembled the original Persian design. The origins of Polo uh, date back to this time, and Persians' nobility played an early uh, form of both Polo and for both sport and combat training. Now, in Daniel 6, 1 through 5, we see Darius being involved in relation to Israel. It says, It pleased Darius to appoint 120 satraps to rule throughout the kingdom with three administrators over them, one of whom was Daniel. The satraps were made accountable to him so that the king might not suffer loss. Now Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators that the satraps, by his exceptional qualities, that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. At this, the administrators and the satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel in his conduct of government affairs, but they were unable to do so. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt or negligent. Finally, these men said, we will never find any basis for charges against this man, Daniel, unless it has something to do with the law of his God. Now, this was where Daniel... Uh, well, these men tricked Darius, and Daniel was thrown into the lion's den. And we know the story, end of the story to that one. Now, 490 to 479, it, uh, <clears throat> there were wars in Persia. The Greek city-states were never a threat to the Persian heartland. What Persia did not achieve through war, it obtained through diplomacy after the Persian Greek Wars ended, Persian kings successfully played the Athenians and Spartans against each other for 150 years. Persia's financial and naval assistance was instrumental in Sparta's victory over Athens in the great uh, Peloponnesian War. Afterwards, Persia began supporting the Athenians. The Persian influence over the two Greek city-states uh, was such that the Persian king Artaxerxes II was asked to mediate between them, leading to the king's peace of 387 B.C. Now, we also see Artaxerxes uh, mentioned in Scripture. Ezra 6, 13 through 15, we see this. Then, because of the decree King Darius had sent Tatitani, governor of Trans-Euphrates, and the Shethar Buz 
Bozenai, and their associates carried it out with diligence. So the elders of the Jews continued to build and prosper under the preaching of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah, a descendant of Edo. They finished building the temple according to the command of the God of Israel and the decrees of Cyrus, Darius, and Artaxerxes, kings of the Persia, kings of Persia. The temple was completed on the third day of the month, Adar, in the sixth year of the reign of King Darius. So you see um, Artaxerxes uh, playing a role in this as well, another Persian king. 550 to 334 BC, the Persian Empire became the dominant world power for over two centuries. It made possible the first significant and continuous contact between East and West. It was the world's first religiously tolerant empire and consisted of a multitude of different languages, races, religions, and cultures. Now, prior to the rise of the Roman Empire, it set a precedent for the importance of the rule of law, a powerful centralized army, and an efficient and systematic state administration. Now, however, the greatest legacy of the Persian Empire was that it demonstrated for the first time how diverse peoples can culturally flourish and economically prosper under one central government. Now, 334 BC, Alexander the Great invaded Persia. After this, his victory over the Persian army, he ordered the execution of many Persians, allowed his troops to indulge themselves in plunder, in rape, and in drunken rage, set torch to Persopolis. However, he also considered himself a successor to the Archaemenian. I can't even say that word, so those of you who are intelligent in this area will show me up. Uh, kings and paid tribute to Cyrus the Great at his tomb. He emulated Persian court customs and attempted to create a new culture, a mixture of both Persian and Hellenistic. He married a Persian woman, Roxana, and ordered all his generals and 10,000 of his soldiers to follow suit in mass wedding. Now, in 332, Alexander died. Although a masterful general, he lacked administrative skills. Shortly after his death, his empire was divided among his contesting generals. An important legacy of his conquest of Persia was the introduction of the Persian imperial practices into the West. Many of these practices, particularly those relating to state administration and the rule of law, were later adopted by the Roman Empire. See the influence of Persia on society and on the world. Now, Daniel 8 uh, five through nine says, as I was thinking about this, suddenly a goat with a prominent horn between his eyes, this was a dream that Daniel had, came from the west, crossing the whole earth without touching the ground. He came toward the two-horned ram I had seen standing beside the canal and charged at him in great rage. I saw him attack the ram furiously, striking the ram and shattering his two horns. The ram was powerless to stand against him, and the goat knocked him into the ground and trampled on him, and none could rescue the ram from his power. The goat became very great, but at the height of his power, his large horn was broken off, and in its place, four prominent horns grew up toward the four winds of heaven. This is in reference to Alexander the Great uh, conquering Persia, 
conquering the lands with great force, and he dies in mid mid uh, power, in the height of his power, and his four generals take over uh, his conquests. 332 to 141 B.C., the Seleucid dynasty was established by one of Alexander's generals. That's one of the four. 570, the prophet Muhammad was born. Now we see a great change at this point in Persia uh, when Muhammad is born and the influx of Islam. So we're going to go now from biblical uh, involvement in Israel and how God uses him to Islam which has now a dominant force in the Persian Empire, which is quite interesting because now we see Iran rising today. And guess what they're promoting? They are promoting um, the early Islamic uh, fundamentals of the Quran. They're trying to go back to the fundamentals of the Quran to the days of Muhammad and to this time, to the purity of Islam, and Iran is uh, is one who is promoting and and also spreading this ideology with power and great force. They are out, they are a bullying force in the Middle East at this time, and it is interesting that. Persia has played such a role. I cannot help but think that Persia is going to be on the center stage with the Antichrist and the coming of uh, the fulfillment of things in Bible prophecy. Now, in 622, fearing persecution for his belief, the prophet Muhammad migrated from Mecca to Medina. This is in Saudi Arabia. His migration, or Hijra, marked the birth of, Islam, of Islamic civilization and the starting point of all Islamic calendars. God conveyed the beliefs, or Allah conveyed the beliefs of Islam to the Prophet Muhammad. Allah and Jehovah are not the same, by the way. Through the angel Gabriel in a series of visions and revelations, Muslims considered the Prophet Muhammad as the last prophet in a line of prophets that includes the prophets Moses and Jesus. They have about 12 prophets that they follow. 632, the Prophet Muhammad died. Subsequently, his his revelations were gathered and compiled into the holy book of Islam, the Quran. It's interesting to note here how Muhammad died. Muhammad died at the hands of a woman. Of course, uh, their tradition wants to debate that it was not just a woman but a group of people, but it was ultimately a woman. A woman poisoned Muhammad, and he died within two months. He actually suffered for a few, uh, a couple months before he died of being poisoned. It was some kind of lamb or some kind of uh, goat that was fixed for him, and the woman poisoned it as she was fixing it. This woman was Jewish, by the way, and Muhammad had just conquered her land, killed her husband and her brother, and then uh, uh, killed her family, and then she tried to... to, uh, 
feed him and be nice to him, and actually she killed him, uh, ultimately. Um, 642, after successfully defending itself against the Roman Byzantine empires for centuries, the Persian Empire was swiftly vanquished by the nomadic tribesmen armed with a newly acquired faith, Islam. Islam's ideals of equality and unity appealed to many Persians as they were in sharp contrast to the rigid and hierarchical social structure of the later Sasanian period. The five pillars of Islam consist of there is no God but Allah, and Muhammad is the prophet of Allah, prayer to always be in touch with God, pilgrimage to Mecca to have a sense of community and for the exchange of ideas, for fasting to feel the pain and the disadvantage and to develop self-discipline, and five alms of charity and contributions to share one's blessings. But I am going to add a sixth pillar which has become prominent today, and that is jihad. That is the highest rung of the ladder. Uh, Islam considers um, uh, a, it, it is a spiritual quest to get to the top rung of the ladder. On the bottom is all the uh, uh, giving to the poor and help building schools and doing things like that that are helpful in society. That is the bottom rung of the ladder. Then as you climb up and climb up the ladder in Islam, the highest rung in where they all want to reach is jihad and martyrdom for, for uh, Muhammad and for Allah. That is the highest honor in Islam. is the sixth pillar of Islam, which uh, is declared today is jihad. Now 661 AD, now this is AD, Imam Ali, the Prophet Muhammad's son-in-law and the fourth and last of the rightly guided caliphs, was assassinated, thus leading to the great schism in Islam between the Sunni and Shiite sects. And that started early off in Islam when Sunni and Shiites were divided. The main dividing point was the issue of Islamic leadership. Shiites believed in the divine right of the family of Muhammad through his daughter Fatima and her husband Ali to lead the Islamic world. Although Persia did not become a Shiite state for almost another nine centuries, this clash was pivotal pivotal in its history. 661 to 750, the Umayyad Caliphate emerged as the rulers of the Islamic, the Islamic world. Although they maintained the Sasanians' administrative practices, the Umayyads considered Islam as primarily an Arab religion and were wary of Persian culture. They tried to force the Arabic language upon the Persians, leading to the demise of the Middle Persian or the Pahlava alphabet in favor of a new Arabic-Persian alphabet in use to this day. They also tried to eradicate the independent and unique sense of Persian identity in the same way that they uh, Arabized and assimilated the Egyptians and the Assyrians, but with minimal success. So the Persians fought against that. 750, with Persians financing and support, the Abbasids ended Amiyad rule, their victorious armies were led by a Persian general named Abu Muslim uh, Khorasani. The Islamic capital was relocated from Damascus to Baghdad. Now you see, this is where per, in, in Persia, Baghdad was in Persia at one time. 
a newly built city adjacent to the old Sasanian capital, Ctesiphon. This relocation symbolized the rising power of Persians in the Islamic world, and they actually assimilated themselves to Islam, and Islam became Persian. Farsi, which is the Persian language, is actually today the most popular language in the Middle East. More people are on the Internet in Farsi than any other language. Now, the Quran is in Arabic, so those who are actually followers of the Quran learn it in Arabic because those who read it in Arabic can understand it properly. The ones who are understanding Arabic properly and reading the Quran in that language are the ones who are considered the fundamental uh, Muslims who are considered the pure Muslims. Anyone else is not as pure and does not have the right interpretations for the most part. We see Osama bin Laden was one who learned in Arabic and he was motivated by uh, what he read in the context of the Arabic language and his interpretation of that. With uh, 750 to 1258, where we ended last week, and I kind of, I kind of did a kind of a different perspective on history, uh, placing Bible history and the Islamic history onto the history that we talked about last week. Um, the Abbasid Caliphate relied on Persian ministers and bureaucracy for many state functions, and Persian customs began to take deep roots under the Abbasids. Later caliphs adopted the Persian court ceremonial procedures, and the Persian Barmakid family became the ar architects of the Abbasid political structure. Now, the Abbasid reign marked the pinnacle of the power of the glory of the Islamic world. Um, the Abbasids have, have their own understanding, uh, and, and they were not considered the royals. They were considered strictly chosen by Muhammad. They actually uh, returned to the true caliphate governing method of the Muslim nation in Islam. And uh, the word caliph means a successor. In other words, the one who comes after another ruler. After Prophet Muhammad, four successive caliphs reigned who enjoyed widespread approval among Muslims when they were chosen. They followed the methodology of the Prophet uh, Muhammad in governing. And this is what the Abbasids did. They, they did this. And it says, um, under proper caliphate system, any good Muslim can be chosen as a caliph. Um, Prophet Muhammad has accurately prophesied the governing methods that came to be followed after him and has prophesied that the proper caliphate system will be applied again around the end of time. The Mahdi is expected to rule as a proper caliph. And so, and it, it actually, the Abbasids follow uh, strict instructions from Muhammad in who to choose. And that's why it's significant to um, study them. If you want to study them further, you spell it A-D-D-A-S-I-D-S. -S. Um, in 
20 to 1220 Arab rule over Persia began to diminish as the various local Persian monarchs monarchs rose in power, the Tarahids, Safarids, and those. And then, then in 945 to 1055, the Bayids from north-central Iran defeated the Arab armies and captured Baghdad. Although they allowed the caliph to retain his title, they reduced the role of the caliph to that of the religious figurehead. 1258 to 1350, the Mongols sacked Baghdad in 1258, thus ending the Abbasid Caliphate. The the uh, two Khanid dynasty again controlled the segment of the Mongol Empire cover, covering Persia. And then 1295, Ghazan Khan became the first Mongol leader to convert to Islam. After his conversion, the Mongols, like the Greek, Arab, and Turkish Turk, yeah, invaders before them became Persianized. Now, in 1215 A.D. to 1215, I'm sorry, 1524 A.D. to uh, or 1501 to 1524. Sorry, I had to look at how much time I had left. Shah Ishmael I united all of Persia under the Iranian leadership after some nine centuries of foreign or fragmented rule. Being a Shiite, he declared Shiism as the state religion and converted virtually all of Persia and some surrounding areas under his control from Sunnism to Shiism. Shiism became a median uh, for the Persians to differentiate themselves from the rest of the Islamic world, in particular from the Sunni Ottomans. To ensure its continuation as the state religion, the Safavid kings in general supported the Shiite clergy. Now we're getting into closer to our time in our day, our centuries. 1795, although the Qajars succeeded in reuniting the country, they were generally weak and corrupt rulers. The economic and military gap between Iran and the West widened considerably under their reign, especially in light of the Industrial Revolution that was taking place in the West. 1813 and 1828, European imperialism resulted in English and Russian penetration in the in Iranian affairs. The Qajars lost the Caucasus, present-day Georgia, Armenia, and Azerbaijan to the Russians in two separate treaties. The Golden Stand in 1813 and the Turkmenaki in 1828. As a result of the 1828 treaty, the Qajars were forced to enact the capitulation law exempting all foreign citizens from Iranian jurisdiction. This law deeply humiliated the Iranian people. 1851 to 1906, the Qajars lost Central Asian provinces to the Russians and were forced to give up all claims on Afghanistan to the British. These two European powers dominated Iran's trade and manipulated its internal politics. The Qajars and influential members of their court were bribed to sell many valuable consensions, consensions, consensions 
to the British, such as the Tobacco Convention, with triggered, which triggered a massive popular uprising. So we're seeing some of the uprisings. Now, you, now if you can follow along with me, you can see how it went from uh, the you know biblical history involvement of even the beginning of time to how Islam came and emerged into the society and and then how uh the west and how russia and how britain actually uh kind of took over in places of iran in in the persian empire in 1906, discontent with Qajar corruption and mismanagement led to the Constitutional Revolution and the establishment of Iran's first parliament of Majils. The constitutional aspirations for a limited monarchy were never to be fully realized. Although Iran never became an actual, actual colony of imperial powers, in 1907, it was divided into two spheres of influence. The north was controlled by Russia and the south and the east by Britain. By the end of World War I, Iran was plunged into a state of political, social, economic chaos. 1921, Rezan Khan, an officer in the army, staged a coup. Initially, the minister of war and then the prime minister in 1925, Reza Khan, decided to become the Shah himself, which means Prince of Persia. Although Reza Khan's initial objective was to become the president of a republic, the clergy, fearing a diminished role in a republic, persuaded him to become the Shah. Now, 1925 to 1941, maybe some of you now are getting a little closer to where you've you know, been alive. I, I haven't because I was born in 1965, so I wasn't even a, in existence yet. So Reza Shah Pahlavi's first priority was to strengthen authority of the central government by creating a disciplined standing army and restraining the autonomy of the tribal chiefs. He embarked upon a series of modernizing and secular reforms, some of which were designed specifically to break the power of the clergy over Iran's educational and judicial systems. He provided public education, built Iran's first modern university, opened the schools for women, and brought them into the workforce. He initiated Iran's first industrialization program and dramatically improved Iran's infrastructure by building numerous roads, bridges, state-owned factories, and Iran's first transnational railway. In 1935, he officially requested all foreign governments to no longer refer to Iran as Persia, but as Iran. The Iranian people themselves had always referred to their country as Iran. Politically, however, Reza Shah forcibly abolished the wearing of the veil, took away the effective power of the Majils, and did not permit any forms of free speech. With the outbreak of World War II, Reza Shah wanted to remain neutral and refused to side with any allies. This is the Shah. Well, you know, I knew him as the Shah, and I remember the Shah very briefly. I wasn't really into politics at that time, but I do remember him in the 1979 um, uh, revolution. 
being ousted out of his country. I do remember that. Um, I didn't understand why. I didn't understand who he was. Um, <clears throat> but we're going to, you know, we will just really touch on him before we get into the Islamic Revolution in 1979. We're, we're building up to that right now. 1941, in need of the trans-Iranian railway, railway to supply the Soviets with wartime materials, the Allies invaded and occupied Iran for the duration of the war. Reza Shah was forced to abdicate in favor of his son, Mohammed Reza Pahlavi. That, that's the one I'm talking about. It's Mohammed Reza Pahlavi and died in South Africa in exile in 1944. So the first one that we were talking about between 1925 to 1945 was actually the father of the Shah that I said I remembered. In 1946, under American pressure, um, uh, the Soviet Union was forced to pull out of Iran's northwestern province. It was the first and only time that Stalin gave back a World War II-occupied territory. 1962-1963, the Shah introduced his White Revolution. It consisted of major land reform, workers' rights, and women's suffrage, among other initiatives. His reforms did not develop as planned due to poor execution. In a series of public speeches, Ayatollah Khomeini attacked these reforms. He was arrested and then exiled. So now we're, we're getting introduced to Ayatollah Khomeini, 1963-1973-1973-1973-1973-1973-1973-1973-1973-1973-1973-1973-1973-1973-1973-1973-1973-1973-1973-1973-1973-1973-1973-1973-1973-1973-1973-1973-1973-1973-1973-1973-1973-1
one week, well, I think it's one week, even that or one month, it that that Iran went from a more Western style, dip, you know, uh, monarchy. Well, it's not a Western style monarchy, but but went from more a Western style system of democracy to Sharia law and the establishment establishment of of Quranic ideology. It was a very dramatic change. Now. Let us, you know, we're going to go to the Islamic Revolution and we're going to focus on that in Ayatollah Khomeini. I believe that this is probably, probably all the time I'm going to have is to focus on this and to kind of wrap it up a little bit and how this is actually coming to a Bible prophecy of today. I know that there is a reason why I've said all these things the reason why I've built it up to this this point. Now, the modern-day Islamic revolution was born on April Fool's Day in 1980. As Ayatollah Khomeini, uh, Khomeini proclaimed it the first day of the government of God in Iran. Now, despite you know, our involvement as the United States, and those of you who are not part of the United States listening to this program, I'm just going to give you, you know, going to remind some people of of our involvement in this particular revolution, which was kind of a sorry involvement. But because we had um, befriended the Shah and that the Shah wanted to become like us and ha- have support from us, it was those reasons that he was thrown out of office. Uh, the Quran says we are not to, they are to throw, you know, their goal is to overthrow the West and not have imperial uh, countries to influence their particular ideology. So this is actually an example of what is, is going on in the Middle Eastern uprisings. Iran is behind these uprisings, and as we go along, you'll see it, maybe not today, maybe in the next, uh, in part three. But despite Americans' history of support going back to World War II, now President Carter at the time had no desire to see a pro-Shah regime in power, even though he befriended the Shah, even though he he, uh, acted as though he was uh, in support of the government, he was not. He preferred the uh, Ayatollah, whom he he see, seems to regard as a Gandhi-like figure. I mean, who today can we say is saying that about uh, Islamic regimes today? The comparison made sense to a point. The Ayatollah opposed the Shah, who who had a terrible record of human rights abuses. But that's where the comparison breaks down. Gandhi was nonviolent. Ayatollah was anything but. The president was actually working through the U.S. Embassy and the State Department to put Khomeini in power. At that point, Khomeini had been in exile in France for 14 years. So Carter administration was actually working against the Shah to put... uh, 
Canadian power. It was Thursday, February 1st, 1979, and over one million people filled the streets of Tehran. The hordes were organized to greet a triumphal Khomeini as he returned to Iran. A military guard at the airport stands ready to receive Khomeini with the full support of Jimmy Carter. The Ayatollah's bodyguards, a um, motley crew of 30 to 40 high-trained Libyans, were there to, to assist. Now you see how Libya is involved in this as well. His trip is anything but aimless. Khomeini tells his driver to take him to the best hashed El Zarak Cemetery, the resting place of many martyrs, victims of Iranian army troops under the Shah. Now, Khomeini, Khomeini speaks, and he says this, I must tell you that the, that Mohammed Reza Pahlavi, that evil traitor, has gone, he says. He fled and plundered everything. He destroyed our country and filled our cemeteries. He ruined our country's economy. Even the projects he carried out in the name of progress pushed the country toward decadence. He suppressed our culture, annihilated people, and destroyed all of our manpower resources. But Khomeini's goal isn't to merely demonize the Shah. The Ayatollah is here to lay down the law. And this is at this site where uh, there is a place of martyrs. He was saying this. We are saying this man, his government, his majlis, or parliament, are all illegal. He continues with profound authority. If they were to continue to stay in power, we would treat them as criminals and would try them as a criminal. I shall appoint my own government. I shall slap this government in the mouth. I shall determine the government with the backing of this nation because this nation accepts me. It's a declaration of war on the government of Prime Minister Bakhtar. I don't know how to say his name. Those days are now officially numbered. Um, Khomeini plans to establish a cleric-dominated theocracy with himself as chief spiritual and political leader. And there is no place in the scheme for a Western leader like Bakhtar. The mullahs had been preaching the need for an Islamic theocracy for over 20 years. Khomeini's speech is a clear decree that their time has arrived. Now, a grim scene quickly unfolds. Many of the generals who worked to stabilize the country are soon assassinated. Slower on his feet than the Shah, Bakhtar flees to France but does not escape the revolution. Khomeini's assassins murder him in his new home, a token of another more troubling reality. The Ayatollah's plans for Islamic revolution will not be contained by Iran's borders. The revolution's destiny is to spread across the globe, often by blood and terror. Taking a cue from the French Revolution of 1789, hasty show trials paved the way for politically and religiously motivated executions. No opposition is brooked. Heretics and dissidents are imprisoned and killed. Mothers even turn in disloyal sons, which the Ayatollah publicly applauds. 
Iranian students over on the U.S. Embassy on November 4th, 1979. Considering his regrettable involvement, it is fitting that America would remember President Carter's performance amidst the crisis. He refused to solicit our allies' support to stop the Ayatollah from returning to Iran. He refused to give material support to Bakhtar's government. And most devastating of all, he refused to publicly condemn Khomeini. His grand scheme of undermining the Shah exploded in his face. The events in Iran would ultimately destroy his political career and contribute to the birth of our current crisis with radical Islam. They would also pave the way for one of the world's most serious nuclear threats since the Soviet Union. And this started with Carter, and I don't know why we brought him back. Uh, when Obama was elected as though he was a hero because he was not back then. The Ayatollah Khomeini returned to bring his radical Islamic revolution to Iran. He believed this was the first step of of his revolution sweeping across the world. Khomeini's heart burned with the vision that the West, led by the United States, would come under Islam's grip. Soon the illegitimate state of Israel would be eliminated. He was convinced all other religions would give way to Islam and a Muslim theocracy would be established in every corner of the globe. The power Ayatollah Khomeini held over the Iranian population was almost mystical in nature, kind of like what Hitler had over the people of Germany. He was a Shiite Muslim, a minority in the world where the vast majority of Islamic adherents Sunni. Iran is one of the few countries where Shiites are in the majority. Now, the, the dispute between Sunnis and Shiites goes back to the death of the Prophet Muhammad. In the 7th century, the first Islamic theocracy was founded in Medina. And see, this is where they're going back to, is, is what was founded in Medina in Saudi, Ara- in, in, in a Saudi Arabian city north of Mecca. The Sunni branch of the religion believes that the first four caliphs are the rightful successors of Muhammad. The Shiites believe that only the fourth caliph, Ali, is the legitimate successor. The distinctions don't stop there. In 941 AD, a religious leader known as the Mahdi, or the 12th Imam, supposedly disappeared down a well near Jamkaran in Iran's Qom province. Now, last my, on my last show, I introduced to you a scholar from the Qom province. This is a very important city. And you'll find a lot of the leaders will come out of there and out of that religious uh, teaching. And, you know, um, so it's Q-O-M province. Shiites believe that he was uh, hidden or occulted that means hidden, uh, but will one day reemerge to oversee a millennial-style age of peace, justice, and true belief. Adherents have a messianic view that the way needs to be prepared for the return of the 12th Imam, much as many Orthodox Jews await the appearance of the Messiah and evangelical Christians await the second coming of Jesus Christ. With the second coming of the Mahdi, Shiites expect to realize the final triumph of Islam worldwide. 
That final triumph will not come without intense struggle. Khomeini believed that only a properly structured Islamic theocracy could create conditions needed for the return of the 12th Imam. As he and his followers saw it, Khomeini was on a mission from God. Divine destiny preordained that he would return to Iran and then sweep across the world, a motion that would entail apocalyptic wars that would eventually remove the infidel from the Holy Land and unseat America from its role of superpower. But the Ayatollah died with his work unfinished. And by the time of his death in 1989, I said 81, uh, Khomeini had had succeeded only in establishing a theocracy in Iran. Still, Khomeini had humiliated the United States. Khomeini held the American embassy hostages for a record of 444 days and savored Carter's defeat as a great victory. On the day Ronald Reagan, and I do remember this so clearly as though it was yesterday, uh, was inaugurated, Khomeini strategically released the hostages. He acknowledged both Carter's weakness and Reagan's strength. But Reagan could not bring down the Ayatollah. In the end, Reagan backed off, legitimately concerned that Iran-Contra crisis of his second term could become his undoing. Two suicide attacks in 1983 drove the U.S. out of Lebanon. Those events have become the yardstick for Iran's activities. Its leaders believe that it, in the heat of, uh, if the heat is sufficient, America will retreat. And that is so true, because we will. Khomeini set in motion the dream of a worldwide Islamic revolution. Even today, the emotion of Khomeini's 1979 revolution still remains strong as ever in Iran. Ayatollah Khomeini and Iran's president, Mahmoud Ahmadinejad, have ticked up Khomeini's cause, uh, and I'm saying Ayatollah Khomeini, um, not Khomeini, uh, so picked up Khomeini's cause and are inspired by shared beliefs in the Mahdi. It is their divine mission to complete the radical Islamic revolution that Ayatollah Khomeini began. Now, before I end this show, I want to I want to tell you, you know, uh, a little bit about Ayatollah Khomeini. Uh, who is he, and and why was he so significant? He was born September twenty fourth, nineteen o two. He was uh, he was born in Khomeini, Persia, and he died on June 3rd, 1989, in Tehran, Iran. And uh, Ayatollah Khomeini was the founder and supreme leader of the Islamic Republic of Iran, the only leader in the Muslim world who combined political and religious authority as a head of state. He took office in 1979. Now, as Ayatollah Rola. Masavi Khomeini was born on September 24, 1902, according to most sources. The title Ayatollah, the sign of God, reflected his scholarly religious standing in the Shia Islamic tradition. His first name, Rahola, which means the spirit of God, is a common name in spite of its religious meaning. And his last name is taken from his birthplace, the town of Khomeini which is about 200 miles south of Tehran, Iran's capital city. His father, Mustafa Musavi, was the chief cleric 
with those with religious authority of the town and was murdered only five months after his after the birth of Rahola. The child was raised by his mother, Hajar, and Aunt Shaheba. Both of them died when Rahola was about 15 years old. Ayatollah Khomeini's life after childhood went through three different phases. The first phase from 1908 to 1962 was marked mainly by training, teaching, and writing in the field of Islamic studies. At the age of six, he began to study the Quran, Islam's holy book, and also elementary Persian an ancient language of Iran. Later, he completed his studies in Islamic law, ethics, and spiritual philosophy under the supervision of Ayatollah Abdul Karim Hari Yazdi in Qam. Now here is in Qam again. Qam has turned out so many different spiritual leaders. It is a very prominent city. Now where he also got married and had two sons and three daughters. Although during his scholarly phase of his life, Khomeini was not politically active, the nature of his studies, teachings, and writings revealed that he firmly believed in, the, in political activism by clerics or religious leaders. The second phase of Khomeini's life from 1962 to 1979 was marked by political activism, which was greatly influenced by his strict religious interpretation of Shia Islam, he practically launched his fight against the Shah's regime, the, king, the king's rule, in 1962, which led to the eruption of a religious and political rebellion on June 5, 1963. This date, 15th of Kurdad in the Iranian solar calendar, is regarded by the revolutionists as the turning point in history of the Islamic movement in Iran. The Shah's bloody crushing of the uprising was followed by the exile, forced removal of Khomeini in 1964, first to Iraq and then to France. Khomeini's religious and political ideas became more extreme and his entry into active political opposition reflected a combination of events in his life. First, the death of his two leading Iranian religious leaders left leadership open to Khomeini. Second, through Although he, ever since the rise of Reza Shah Pahlavi in 1878 to 1944 to power in the 1920s, the clerical class had been on the defensive because of his movement away from from certain religious policies. And third, the Shah's granting of diplomatic privileges to the American military personnel in 1964 was viewed as insulting to the Iranian sense of national independence because the Quran requires that they trust in God, uh, in Allah, and not in some other country for their defense. The third phase of Khomeini's life began with his return to Iran from exile on February 1st, 1974, after Mohammad Reza Shah had been forced to step down two weeks earlier. On February 11th, the revolutionary forces loyal to Khomeini seized power in Iran, and Khomeini emerged as the founder and the supreme leader of the Islamic Republic of Iran. From the perspective of Khomeini and his followers, the Iranian Revolution went through several revolutionary phases. The first phase began with Khomeini's appointment of Mahdi Bazar Zargan as the head of the provisional government on February 5, 1979, and ended with his fall on November 6, two days after the capture of the U.S. Embassy the U.S. headquarters in Iran. 
The second revolution was marked by the elimination of mainly nationalist forces or forces devoted to the interests of a culture. As early as August 20th, 1979, 22 newspapers that clashed with Khomeini's views were ordered closed. In terms of foreign policy, the landmarks of the second revolution were were the destruction of the U.S. Um, Iran relations and the admission of the of the Shah to the United States on October 22nd, 1979. Two weeks later, Khomeini instructed Iranian students to expand with all of their might their attacks against the United States in order to force to the extradition, legal surrender of the Shah. The seizure of the American embassy on November 4th led to 440 days of agonizing dispute between the United States and Iran until the release of the hostages on January 21st, 1981. And the so-called Third Revolution began with Khomeini's dismissal of President Abdu Hassan Bani Sadir on June 22nd, 1981. Bani Sadir's fate was a result of Khomeini's determination to eliminate from power any individual or group that could stand in the way of the ideal Islamic Republic of Iran. And this is what I'm talking about when I talk about um, what they're doing in the Middle East. It says any uh, to eliminate from power any individual or group that would could stand in the way of the ideal Islamic Republic of Egypt, of Libya, of Bahrain, all of those countries. They are actually get, ousting those leaders. Um, expend to export the Islamic Revolution and increasing relations with the Soviet Union, a once powerful nation that was made up of Russia and several other other nations. Um, The Sheikh Abdul, you know, prophecies of the Ayatollah Khomeini, he had some prophecies that he had announced, and he said this is what he prophesied. Before this all happened, he, Khomeini had predicted that the first, that first the Shah of Iran, Mohammad Reza Shah Pahlavi, would be dethroned. Then he predicted an Islamic revolution would be birthed in Iran, and then the Soviet Union would fall. This would be followed by the collapse of Saddam Hussein's regime, and his country would be burned by fire. And it's talking about Saddam Hussein. Next would come the annihilation of Israel and the collapse of the United States. Um, <clears throat> and Sheikh Abdul Rahman uh, was part of the uh, Radical Muslim Brotherhood, uh, hung on uh, Khomeini's words, and he said he believed that he had been chosen by Allah to prepare the way of the age of Mahdi when Shiite Islam would prepare across the world, would spread across the world to destroy other apostate religions. At last, says Abdul Rahman, uh, part of the Muslim Brotherhood, I am preparing the way and Abdul rejoiced. Now, Abdul is a Shiite. He believed in the second coming of the Mahdi, the 12th Imam, 
who disappeared centuries ago down a well in Qom, Iran. This messianic vision required a world apocalypse to bring his return. If an apocalypse would usher in the Mahdi, he thought, then we will shut the mouth of Satan for all eternity. Uh, some significant things that uh, Ayatollah Khomeini did in 1982, the Grand Ayatollah handpicked a call a group of approximately 150 children to be trained as children of the imam. They would be trained. Uh, young men graduated from Iran's most elite and secret training camp. These dedicated devotees of the Grand Ayatollah Rola Khomeini were thoroughly prepared for the service to the imam. This graduating class, endowed with the task of exporting the revolution to an unsuspecting world, had apparently been granted Khomeini's seal of approval. And this is the oath that they had to take. Now, these are would be adults today. In the name of Allah, the Avenger, and in the name of Imam Khomeini, Khomeini, I swear on the holy book to perform my sacred duty as a child of the Imam and a soldier of Islam in our holy war, to restore this world the light of divine justice. May Allah be my guide on the path of jihad. Now, we have to, one thing that I didn't tell you that uh, was part of uh, Iran in their history is that uh, the Persians invented the game of chess. The intent of Ayatollah Khomeini is for the Iranians to lay the global chess match of diplomacy, summits, and international talks so that there is nothing the United States or Israel can do to stop them from developing nuclear weapons until it is too late. Now, what is going on is Iran is trying to get the nuclear uh, capabilities so that they can issue in the rule of the of the the twelfth of Noms. If they have to do it in chaos by causing war, by causing destruction, that's exactly how they're going to do it for the arrival of the Imam. And they believe by getting the nuclear war, nuclear uh, power or nuclear um, capabilities would help them in their bully pulpit to make the world submit to Islam. Um, <clears throat> Ahmadinejad believes, and I will quick, I will, I will end with Ahmadine, what he says about Ayatollah Khomeini. And what I want to do next week on part three is I want to bring in, just like I did this time with history, bringing in prophecy and putting the scriptures onto the history of Iran and the current uprise. I am going to go next week. I'm going to talk about three more, the three other people that I mentioned in the beginning, and then I am going to uh, put Bible prophecy in context with what is going on in Iran. To end, I am going to say, um, Ahmadinejad said. Uh, some he says some you know interesting things. Uh, he made it clear that he he could envision a world without America, and he stood behind the slogan "Death to America." 
His vision derived from the prophetic words of Ayatollah Khomeini, who envisioned the demise of the Shah, the fall of the Soviet Union, the demise of Saddam Hussein, all of which have come to pass. Ahmadinejad believes that all of Khomeini's prophecies will soon be fulfilled. When the dear Imam, and this is what he says, this is a quote from him, he says, when the dear Imam Khomeini said that the Shah's regime must go and that we demand a world without dependent governments, many people who claim to have political knowledge and other knowledge asked, is it possible that the Shah's regime can be toppled? That day, when Khomeini began his movement, all the power supported the Shah's corrupt regime and said it was not possible. However, our nation stood firm, and by now we have for 27 years, been living with a government dependent on America, Imam Khomeini said the rule of the East, USSR, and the West, the U.S., should be ended. But the weak people who saw only the tiny world world near them did not believe it. Nobody believed that, that we would one day witness the collapse of the Eastern imperialism, i.e. the USSR, and said it was an iron regime. But in a short li- in our short lifetime, we have witnessed how this regime collapsed in such a way that we must look for it in libraries, and we can and, and we can find no literature about it. Imam Khomeini said that Saddam Hussein must go, and that he would be humiliated in a way that was unprecedented. And what do you see today? A man. Who, who 10 years ago spoke as proudly as it would he would live for eternity, is today changed by the feet and is now being tried in his own country. He said this when we had hunted Saddam Hussein. I am going to end this here and I want you to join me next week as we are going to take this revolution we're going to understand it better we're going to understand the last the the imam and we're going to put it all in perspective of prophecy and and uh the coming of the last imam and then the next show I'm going to do is going to be on where is uh Babylon going to rise and where is the Imam Mahdi predicted to set up his kingdom? Uh, this is my name is Brenda Johnson, and I am the host of As the Day Approaches. And I thank you for joining me today. I hope to see you next week. And uh, if you want to join me on false teachings, identifying them on Facebook, please come and join me as we discuss all different kinds of things on that site. Also, I have my own personal web um, Facebook site, and I am actually creating a site for this radio show called As the Day Approaches. Uh, look for that, and I will uh, see you again next week. Thank you. Goodbye. <laughs>